You open a book and it invites you to fall in. That was my North Star. I always sailed towards that star. I felt like a child. I felt like I was in this womb-like environment. And when I sat and listened to him, I became innocent and time ceased. We became immortal. Welcome to the National Writer Series from Interlochen Public Radio. I'm Doug Stanton. Today, literary journalist Michael Padnity talks about the greatest storyteller he ever met, a cheesemaker in the small Spanish village of Guzman. He believes in this code that the old Castilian used to believe in, which is honor and faith and purity. And so into this cheese, he poured all of these things, including his love. Michael Paternity's latest book is The Telling Room, a tale of love, betrayal, revenge, and the world's greatest piece of cheese. His literary nonfiction has appeared in magazines such as Outside, Rolling Stone, and Esquire. Paternity starts off the program explaining how he came to write his previous book, Driving Mr. Elbert, in which he travels across country with Albert Einstein's brain in the trunk of his car. A long time ago, this would have been in the 90s, I uh, was working as an editor at Outside Magazine, and I'd heard just this um, urban legend about Einstein's brain being in a garage in Saskatchewan. And <laughs> I, I didn't understand it. It just sounded like a great story. But what had happened was the... the the pathologist who did the autopsy when Einstein died in 1955 had allegedly um, cut open Einstein's head and removed his brain and then took it with him. Uh, and nobody knew exactly where he was. And um, so I, I would tell this story you know, to people um, and just say, oh, Einstein's brain is in a garage next to some hockey sticks in Saskatchewan. And, um, and at the time, we were in Santa Fe, and I was talking to our landlord. And I told him the story, and he said, uh, no, that's not where it is. It's, um, it's in Lawrence, Kansas. Uh, and the guy <laughs> who lives next door to my friend William uh, has it. And <laughs> so, so, I mean, as improbable as that was, uh, William turned out to be William Burroughs, uh, the great beat father of the Beats. And uh, it was true. This guy was there with Einstein's brain next door to William Burroughs. And that started this, um, this quest that I went on to find this man. And then uh, when I did find him, he had moved back eventually to Princeton, New Jersey. Flash forward a little bit. And um, he was an old man. He was 86. And he had decided that maybe it was time to bring it back to the Einstein family. And Einstein's granddaughter, Evelyn, lived at the time in Berkeley. Evelyn actually was, um, it was alleged that, that Evelyn was Einstein's daughter from uh, an affair he had with a dancer. And that um, Hans Albert, Einstein's son, adopted Evelyn. So um, it, she was both granddaughter and daughter of Einstein. Um, it's all relative, kind of. It's all relative. <laughs> it's the last joke. Uh. Um, so anyways, we, we, he decided he wanted to drive um, this brain uh, across America to give it back to, the, to Evelyn. And I ended up driving him. Yeah. So we put the brain in the trunk and hit the road. <laughs> I mean, that is so wild. I could just, I could hear, I could listen to you tell story. I mean, that is an amazing story. But 
that I, I, I want to admit, or I want, I, would, I want to point out that you seemed a little tongue-tied at the time, because I remember getting a phone call from you, and you were in a bar in Kansas, and the <laughs> phone rang, and you said, what do I say to people? He goes, I, I'm, I'm with the guy, what was his name? Uh, Thomas Harvey. Yeah, yeah. I, I'm with Mr. Harvey, he doesn't talk a lot, he's kind of really quiet, and I don't know what we're supposed to talk about, and I, I go into places, and there's really nothing to say, and I said, Mike, you're driving across Kansas with Einstein's brain in the trunk. <laughs> when the guy next to you at the bar says, so what do you do? <laughs> I mean, that's an amazing line. And, uh, but, but that kind of mirthful uh, innocence that you've always kind of displayed and always kind of infused your writing is what makes it so wonderful. The book um, right here, I have an early galley. It's really wonderful. And it's, it's certainly worth a read because um, I think it's telling in that it, it suggests themes of the telling room, mm -hmm. in that it's about a quest. And so talk to us your, uh, about what the telling room is about. The, the, this telling room book um, took um, a long time to write. In fact, I'm, I, I had so much more hair when this began. <laughs> um, it, I was a grad student in Ann Arbor, Michigan, and I was in the MFA program for fiction, and I was broke. I was trying to pick up some extra work, and uh, I went to Zingerman's Deli to see if they might hire me to make sandwiches or, to, or do something somewhat glamorous. Um, and as an MFA student, I, I didn't even qualify to, to make sandwiches. Um, but it turned out that the owner of the deli, Ari Weinzweig, traveled the world, and he would go out and find these products and bring them back to the deli. And this was before foodie culture had kicked in. He was doing something really unusual real, um, by going out and collecting not just old recipes and old histories, um, but a lot of times these products that were going to be lost unless somebody like Ari had come along and um, purchased it. There were, these were a lot of small um, makers of uh, cheese and olive oil. Um, and he, he really privileged uh, this culture of, of handmade food. And um, so I was allowed to proofread his newsletter. And he was really like the Indiana Jones of food. So I, would, um, I was so happy to participate just vicariously in, in uh, this newsletter. And it turned out that in October of 1991, uh, they had a Spanish celebration month. And he had a little four paragraph entry for this cheese. Uh, called Paramo de Guzman, and it sounded in that very sort of pointillistic entry like the beginning of a fairy tale. It really was kind of uh, incredible. There was a cheesemaker in a tiny village in Castel, and he would milk the sheep by hand himself, and then he would carry the milk to a stable, and he would set the milk on top of a flame and stir it, uh, and then make cheese from it, and then carry it up to their family cave. And I remember that, like, sort of blowing my mind. What's a family cave? I didn't know anyone with a family cave. Um, so he then, um, he then sort of shared this cheese eventually with the world, and we'll talk a little bit about the legend of this cheese. But, um, but Ari found this cheese, and in the entry he called it rich, dense, and intense, and it was the most expensive cheese Zingerman's had ever sold, so uh, he wrote he was afraid to put it out on the counter because he thought people were going to try to steal it. And I just thought that was sort of funny, and I, I, when the newsletter was finished, I ripped it out, I stuck it in my wallet, 
and then carried on with my, my life. Um, this is 1991. This is 91. And then flash forward nine years, in the year 2000, I was a magazine writer. Uh, by that time, we had met um, at Outside Magazine. And I was uh, sort of freelance, but I was working a little bit more for Esquire. And Esquire sent me to Spain to profile the chef Ferran Adria, who, um, if you haven't heard of him, he was um, at that time sort of uh, reinventing cuisine as we know it. He would he would make um, he would make these foams, and he would serve foam on a plate, and it would be green foam, and you would take a spoon of it, and it would taste like asparagus. He had no interest. He was the opposite of Ari. He had no real interest in history, though he knew all of the history. He wanted to destroy that history. Um, and, he was, and he is still fascinating, uh, an amazing sort of Salvador Dali meets Willy Wonka character. <laughs> um, and he's, he's a real madman. And there's one off day, and it was a Sunday. I had, that, I had the entry still on my wall. I actually had carried it in my wallet. And my friend Carlos was along, because I don't speak Spanish. I didn't speak Spanish at the time. And uh, what Spanish I know now just gets me into trouble constantly. Uh, but we went up to this little village of Guzman. And it's- Where is it exactly in Spain? Is it? It's north central. So if you, if you come up the national highway from Madrid, you go about two hours, and then you, you cut to the um, west. And out on the Meseta, on the high plain that's about half a mile above sea level, uh, there are these little villages. It's a, lot like, it's a lot like South Dakota, where the landscape is very um, empty. And then you come upon one of these little villages, and Guzman happens to have a population of 80. And uh, the average age there is about 80. So. <laughs> It, it's one of these, you know, sort of genuinely dying villages. Mm -hmm. um, so, anyways, we we did go. Uh, we met this Ambrosio, the cheesemaker. He was in one of these telling rooms, which uh, was part of a cave complex on the north side of town. And into this hill had been built probably 30 caves uh, during Roman times. And into these caves, they would bring uh, their cheeses before refrigeration, they would bring in their homemade wines, they would bring in the harvest, and uh, over time, they built these little rooms above the caves that were deeper in the earth, and they called them telling rooms. They were really, at first, counting rooms. The, the person who sat in the room would count what went into the cave in order to report it to the... So the village is down here, you walk up a slope, yeah. and there are these holes kind of dug into the as you can walk into? Yeah. Do they, they have, have door, doors? They have doors. They're like little hobbit holes. You wow. know, it's like, it's really cool. It was really magical. And, uh, and there's some old, there, nobody, was, uh, nobody was moving in this place. It was 100 degrees. It was August. And no one was moving. And we went up on that hill. We had no idea where to find Ambrosio. He just said we would find him because Carlos had called ahead. We'd been able to get his number. And uh, we bumped into some, a group of uh, people drinking from a paron, which is a, like a decanter with a spout on it. And you pour the wine in, and then you, you tip it up, and it arcs up into your mouth. And uh, the really good guys can, can, they'll be talking a mile a minute, and then they slurp like half a bottle out of the air. Um, they're incredible. There's, there are guys who can like aim it and hit their head here and catch it off their nose. <laughs> 
It's like the Harlem Globetrotters. <laughs> it's incredible. So the, these very nice um, folks pointed us to Ambrosio's cave, to his telling room. Um, and I, they did offer their wine, and I did try it. And so when I finally got, when I got to Ambrosio's uh, door to the cave, I was covered. I looked like I'd been shot like seven times. I was, I was sort of bleeding wine. And Ambrosio opened the door, and he invited us into this telling room. What did he say when he opened the door? Uh, what was your first impression of him? Of, of him? Yeah. Oh, my God. He, he's... That he is, he still is, uh, two, he was this 260-pound bear. He was like this hulking form, and he was this deep baritone voice in the dark, and he said, venga, and, uh, which was like, get in here, come on, um, let's go. Where have you been? And I was like, uh, just, just followed him, like under his wing, under his spell, and that's basically the pattern that exists to this day after, you know, this is now 13 years of going to see Ambrosio. This is who he is. He's a, he is the great storyteller. He's the greatest storyteller I've ever met in my job as a reporter. Um, he's a, a passionate farmer and a cheesemaker, but he's this keeper of the old ways. He believes in, in this uh, code that the old Castilian used to sort of believe in, which is honor and faith and purity. And so into this cheese, he poured all of these things, including his love, and he began to talk about this that first time. You write at one point in this fabulous book, I fell under the spell that there was the place in the world where you could step out of time and maybe live forever. Eating food the old way, whiling away the hours in conversation and storytelling. I was looking for that even though I knew it was unsustainable. But then maybe I went looking for people a little like me, those who became lost and then found again in the most unexpected ways. That's really beautiful. But I was curious, I mean, how were you lost uh, at that time? And what did, I mean, what did you mean by that? Yeah, at that time I, and at this time, I felt this, the real pressure of this modern life that we live, this kind of crazy deadline life, this, I had, we were at the beginning of, of um, having our family. So we had one and then two and then three small children running around. And to, in order to find those moments of uh, meaningful connection, in order to find time, like I found immediately when I walked into the telling room, to tell stories, to share your history. And I began to wonder, why don't I know more about my own family history? How American is that? Uh, and Castile, Ambrosio could sit there and take me back um, generations. He could go seven generations just off the top of his head. And uh, so I think there was a part of me that thought that this was an antidote to this modern life that we were living, this sort of um, life determined by our devices and by our, our connectedness, which had nothing to do with connecting with each other. And it was really immediate and visceral and beautiful there because you walk into the telling room and there is the paron of wine on the table. And there are, there's the cheese and the homemade chorizo. And uh, there's this generosity and this spirit. And then the stories. And the stories can last. And some, some of these stories, I mean, this book took, literally, it took 12 years for Ambrosio to finish this story uh, and the telling of it. 
And um, this is very Castilian, just the digressions and the circling around and the stories nested in stories and the footnotes and the sides. Mm -hmm. You have so many fascinating footnotes in the book where you'll mention something up top in the page about the planet Jupiter, and then below there'll be this long explication of how it's important to the room. But just so we're clear, because I think the audience is interested in this, I know I am, you're sitting at a wood plank table in, a, in basically a, a carved room, and you're talking. And, yes. and the telling no longer means counting the cheese that's coming in, but it really means, it's come to mean telling your story. Telling the stories, so the people in Guzman gather and they tell their stories, they tell their histories, they tell their secrets, they tell their dreams, and this is the place that they do it. Every important story that got told to me in Guzman was told in the telling room. And uh, there's sort of a, a sacred space at the same time that it's this place where uh, you're drinking a lot of wine, it's often very loud. Um, Ambrosio, in particular, is very body and scatological, very funny, very Falstaffian. He told you three things when you first met him that were the key to a great life. Do you remember what they were? I mean, they're funny in the book. Yeah, yeah I do remember. Well, number, well there's, there, he wouldn't rank them. Okay. He said they were all equal. Um, he said eating, sex, and defecating. <laughs> but he didn't use that word. And the last was actually for him the most important. He did prior towards that because he felt that this was the blight of uh, modern people, that we had forgotten how to <laughs> and And he, he, had, he could go on for hours and, and days <laughs> about this. Um, didn't he have a special place, a hill that he took you to? He had, he had a very special place. He, one of his favorite things was to go out with his, um, his majos, his buddies, these other shepherds and farmers. And um, when the spirit struck in the fields, they would go up to this, uh, this mesa above the meseta called Monburgo. And they would all um, squat and do their business. And, um, and, but when he talked about this, as crazy as it sounds, um, he literally could turn this into the most uh, meaningful poetic moment um, of a life. And, he's, and he, he, I remember him saying from Mon Virgo, you would look out at the land and you'd see your village and you'd look at each other and you'd say, look at how happy we are. Look at what we have here, this is incredible. And then you would, you know, take a <laughs> And then you would, um, he said, it's, it, it, it's as if you're seeing God in that moment. <laughs> so of course, you know, I, I mean, I was both puzzled and, um, <laughs> but I, I loved it. I love this sort of bizarre audacity. Yeah, um, I can see, I mean, absolutely, yeah. Um, I mean, it's not, to jump ahead a bit, at some point in the book towards the end, don't you, you have an Ambrosio moment. Don't you scrabble to the top of a hill? What happens? Well, <laughs> it's in the book. I it's mean. in the book. I know. <laughs> I, I might go out and rip out those pages before you guys. Um, I'm, I won't go into great detail because um, it, it's in the book. But, um, <laughs> but I, I, was, uh, I was trying out, uh, out over after some time there to be an old Castilian. I was trying out to be one of them. 
And they wanted it very badly. They wanted the Americano to, to live their life. And they were trying every day to show me their life. So we would eat, you know, deep fried sheep ears together. And we would eat pig lips. And we would drink a lot of wine. And we would go drive the tractor uh, all zigzaggy because we were so drunk. And <laughs> this was just part of the life. And when it came to um, this challenge of going to Monvergo and doing this very un-American thing, uh, I decided that this was something I was going to have to do in order to become an old Castilian. <laughs> and um, it didn't work out. <laughs> <laughs> and I can tell you that it was winter. I don't know why I decided to go in winter. Um, but I did, it was painful because I slipped off of Mont Virgo and I started in like ski jump mode down uh, the with hill. The, with your pants around your ankles. Yeah, with my pants. <laughs> but it felt, it, again, it uh, sounds insane. Um, just like you know, driving in a car with Albert Einstein's brain. It, all of it seemed very logical uh, in the moment. <laughs> and, and I think that I, that's what I, I loved about, and I still love about Guzman and Ambrosio, is um, um, in the book, there are, we meet other people from the village, and it is really like a Gabriel Garcia Marquez novel. Mm -hmm. Everything just feels like magical realism. And there was a man in the village named Manuel who everybody claimed could fly. And they said this without you know, any irony. And Ambrosio, in particular, um, was very taken with this idea that Manuel could fly. And he had flown uh, on this one particular evening for a very specific reason uh, that took me three years to get to the bottom of. Uh, but I showed um, this, when I showed Ambrosio, I was there in July, and I showed him a galley of the book. And the book wasn't yet ready. And uh, in the front, there's a map. I don't know if Ben Bush is here. I know he was up here, um, and some of you are here to, to listen to him. But Ben Bush drew this beautiful map in, in the front of the book. And, um, and flying over the village is Manuel. And so I said to Ambrosio, uh, hey, um, there's Manuel. And he looked at Manuel and he said, um, yeah, Manuel's a little heavier than that. <laughs> and I said, yeah, but he's flying. He's flying, right? And he's like, yes, that's just accepted. <laughs> yeah. So, um, but I did, I did love that. I do love that. I love that. Um, and that story is a very, that story ends up being a very powerful one and it's connected to one of the, one of the deep secrets in this place, which is a murder that took place during the Spanish Civil War uh, that haunts the village. And so Manuel taking flight has everything to do with the unlocking of this uh, mystery. Mm -hmm. And your journey through this book for 13, is it 13 years? I mean, I remember we were on the Good Harbor Beach that fall when you were fishing, talking about driving Mr. Elbert, and you were talking about cheese then. And uh, you seem... Let's talk about the power of storytelling. It's called The Telling Room. You've named a nonprofit in Portland, Maine, The Telling Room. Mm -hmm. um, why do we want to be told a story? I mean, I feel like it is the, the most sort of primal thing. And, and that's maybe what I felt instantly in his presence, too, was I felt like a child. I felt like uh, I was in this telling room 
uh, womb-like environment. And when I sat and listened to him, I became uh, innocent and time ceased. Uh, I be became, we became immortal inside of the story. And I, I believe in the power of um, storytelling, not just because I think we come to understand each other, but I also believe in it because I, I feel like it's a way that we keep the past alive, we keep these histories alive, and um, in doing so, we make ourselves um, immortal at some level. We also, there's a complication to storytelling because we, and in this book, um, we tell our ourselves the stories we need um, to believe about ourselves and the stories we need to uh, hear and we listen for the stories that tell us uh, something about our, us and our lives that we don't yet know or feel we need to know. And that can get very tricky when we're trying to preserve our own um, narrative. Mm -hmm. And so one of the things that emerges in this book is that there is a great legend surrounding this cheese. And, and the legend of the cheese is really beautiful and to me was very important. It was the most meaningful thing for me to hang on to, even though eventually uh, that legend began to erode when confronted by the truth. Mm -hmm. So, I, and I waited many years to actually get to the truth. So, in some ways, um, I think I wanted to preserve that story. And eventually, in the writing of the book, I had to ask myself what, why I was working so hard to preserve the, the story legend. that he had told me. You're listening to IPR News Radio. Coming up, Michael Paternity reads from his book, The Telling Room. This is Interlochen Public Radio. Listening to the National Writer Series from Interlochen Public Radio, I'm Doug Stanton, founder of the year-long book festival held in the historic City Opera House in Traverse City, Michigan. We return now to my conversation with Michael Paternitti, author of Driving Mr. Elbert and his latest bestseller, The Telling Room. Let me, to be clear, there's Ambrosio and his cheese and his world. And this cheese, by the way, becomes world famous. Fidel Castro likes it. The King of Spain eats it. The British royal family eats it. It's for sale at Zingerman's. I mean, th this is this is enormously successful. Yeah, Frank Sinatra loved it. Really? And Julio Iglesias. Really? And Fid yeah, Fidel Castro really he tried to buy all of Ambrosio's cheese after he tasted it. Right. So it was like this. Yeah, and this is a man in a stable stirring the milk. So that's how, that has the fairy tale aspects. Enter Mike Paternity into this narrative, and the book really, I think in the second half, becomes about your inability to really finish the story, which is really, a, says a lot of fascinating things about, I think, us as Americans. And, and your wife, Sarah Corbett, had some inter an interesting insight, and I'd like you to explain that. One plus one equals one, or one plus one equals two. And that somehow that was a, she said that to you and it unlocked the book in a way, did it? or? Yeah, she said, well, so I had, it was taking uh, some amount of time, and, and 
I'm going to back up and just say that that first day in the telling room, Ambrosio told this story about the cheese, but I'd come to eat the cheese, and he said that he didn't have this cheese anymore, um, which I found surprising because this had been passed through all these generations of the family, and because I'd, I'd now been waiting nine years to eat it, so he, I, I was like doing the American drive-through, like, give me the cheese, I got to get back to Barcelona, um, and suddenly he, he didn't have this cheese, and there was a story connected to it, and it, um, the short version was when the cheese reached the zenith of its popularity, uh, Ambrosio, who, who hated to do any of the business side of things, he loved to be the guy shaking his hands on a deal and giving his word, but he didn't care for, for the contracts, had enlisted his best friend and soul brother, um, Julian, who he had known forever and had grown up with. And Julian was a lawyer and is a lawyer, and he was a good businessman. So Julian would bring contracts and he would sign them, and Ambrosio um, was signing these contracts because they were gonna move across the fields to a stone factory in another little village just seven miles away. Ambrosio put his name to a contract, um, and that day in the telling room, he alleged that uh, by signing that contract, he signed away his family cheese, he'd signed away the whole thing. And in that moment, he then described how he was plotting to kill Julian. Um, and it was very specific how he was going to do this. He, uh, certain, he devised certain machines and long, slow, torturous. He had a, death. yeah. Yeah, and some of it was connected to storytelling. He had one um, plan in particular where he was going to tell Julian the thousand and one um, stories of their beautiful friendship as he slowly tortured him to death. I mean, it was really grisly, um, but it, it, of course it had to do with story. You know, it's classic Ambrosio. He was mixing in the story. So to, to my wife, I think what, what happened was um, I became, I started going back to Guzman. I became very close to Ambrosio. Uh, our family moved there for a while, so our families became close. And I did not, like a good journalist would have, uh, I didn't want to go see Julian. I didn't want to know his side of it. In fact, I'd taken Ambrosio's side, and Ambrosio would say, oh, that puta, and I'd be like, yeah, you know, what, we're, we were locked in arms against uh, this evil Julian. But eventually I knew I was going to have to go there, and I think my wife, who's also a journalist, uh, was urging me to get, get with it because time was passing and I was, I was still drinking a lot of red wine with Ambrosio and eating a lot of sheep ears and... Uh, I mean, wouldn't you go into the room and kind of sit and type and then you actually notice that you're writing less and less each day? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I was, I, and also when writing in Guzman was tricky because um, you are drinking wine and that turned out not to be as productive as I thought. Uh, <laughs> but you couldn't, fin I mean, essentially you couldn't finish the book. I, right. could, I couldn't finish it. Finish I didn't it. want to finish the book. I didn't want it to end. And I had um, this other part of uh, me that I was in conflict uh, with myself, which was when we went there and lived, we had two young children and a third to come later. But our oldest was three, and our, our middle daughter was one. And in this village, we, we would walk through the streets and all the old people would come and say hello, and we had, you know, 80 grandparents. Uh, 
but I just had all these memories of them being there. And so one day, Leo, our son, was walking down the hill, and he had his batting helmet on, and this, this uh, herd of sheep came up through the village, and suddenly he was lost in this cloud of uh, sheep. And he just, I just remembered, I always remembered like him looking at me in absolute fear and astonishment. And so every time I came to this road in the village, I saw him. So, and I kept going back. So even as Leo became a teenager. He's, thir I, he's 13. He's 13 then. now. But I, always on that stretch of road, he was always going to be three years old. And so for me, there was something about trying to preserve that. Uh, it, I, it wasn't healthy exactly in terms of trying to write a book. I mean, I think these memories stay with us. And I think we go to places um, all the time where we see ghosts from the past and we have these memories and they're very powerful and important um, to allow. But when you have a publisher who wants a book, uh, they don't understand that exactly. So it became my sort of mission to try to understand what this really was in me and, and, and us uh, and put that in the book too. But also at some point I knew I was gonna have to break that spell and that was the most painful thing. It's so interesting because in some ways it's you trying to tell your story of your own acceptance of your own mortality, right? right? And trying to order this pointillistic universe into who is Mike Paternity. Now, I wanted to tell the audience because it's, it's so fascinating. You, um, you, have, you have an amazing career as a narrative nonfiction writer. You know, you talk to anybody in New York and they say, who's the gold standard in narrative nonfiction? And it's Mike Paternity. And so if you've ever read GQ or New York Times Magazine, you always should pick up the issue with his pieces in it. And you've gone around, you went around the world. So there, you had this peripatetic life contrasted to this other story that it almost seems like you're almost willing, in, you know, like you're trying to tell it, like, no, I, I have a place where I belong. We, I have a history. You grew up in Connecticut, right? Right, In yeah. suburban Connecticut yeah. or, yeah. So, and, but it had, close to your family? Yeah, yeah. Um, and, but my, both my parents, my mom had grown up uh, near the Canadian border in Potsdam, New York, um, and she came from sort of English, Irish, and Scotch lineage. And then my father had grown up in Erie, Pennsylvania, and his mm. parents had come from Italy. And then they had moved to the greater New York area. So I, but I, I didn't know any of my history past just my grandparents. and. Um, and I felt, too, a little bit by having left Europe, like back there somewhere, I had some potato farmers. Yeah. And I had, like, you know, the Italian uh, great-grandfather, you know, in a vineyard somewhere. And Ambrosio became that. He became my part of my history. And so I, I became very interested in sort of the, the minutia of his daily life, like how he made the wine, how he made the cheese. Um, what it looked like at two in the morning when they were singing the hotas uh, in the bar. And one, one other um, thing I think about sometimes is when I think about that tension between the journalism that I was doing mm -hmm. and then this place was that if I'd gone as a journalist, I think after that first moment in the telling room, after the, it was at eight hours of Ambrosio talking, uh, and I remember we drove down the hill, Carlos and I, and I felt like my head had exploded. I, I just, it was just a lot to take in, but it was also, it felt so fantastical. And uh, if I'd been on assignment and there had been a timer running, I, I would have been obligated to go the next day to Julian 
And I would, it's just one of those, he said this, what do you say? And you go back, he said this, what do you say? You know, and, and you would begin to try to balance the story or find some relative truth in it or, or your own truth in it. But that, I delayed that uh, literally six or seven years. And part of that was I was reporting on uh, things around the world from uh, like Gitmo, Afghanistan. There were, there were certain stories uh, that we had told ourselves as Americans that were collapsing and imploding. There were certain images that contradicted my own idealism. And I think that I was telling those very um, passionately and, and actively and avidly in that magazine work. And then when I went to Guzman, I, I didn't want to be that person. I wanted to live instead of observe. I wanted not to be, mm -hmm. uh, feel the obligation of having to sort it out. I just wanted to be that child in the telling room being told how to take a sh you know? Mm -hmm. It was pretty basic. I mean, it really was. Like, just the, the beauty of, of those moments. That's really fascinating. It, it, I think you're in search of the mythic. What finally allowed you to finish the telling room? And if you could do, what did Sarah say to you? One, one plus yeah. one? Some well, so, so Sarah said at one point, uh, the reason you can't finish this book is that you're a, um, a one plus one equals oneer, and Ambrosio is a one plus one equals oneer, and I, and I didn't understand at all what she was saying, and she had dated um, out of college uh, a guy, and they had been in Spain, and they went to the Prado, and they came out afterwards, and it was very hot, and they were on the lawn, and Sarah had said after seeing some paintings, um, that she thought that this painter was a one plus one equal one, or it just had popped into her head that it was, it was uh, um, not logical, some of what, what she had seen, but it made perfect sense. There was a sort of infinite quality to it or whatever she was saying at the age of 21, it wasn't quite like that. Um, and her boyfriend said, you know, one plus one equals two. It's just, this is logic. And, they had this argument about, uh, it was a philosophical argument about whether one plus one always equals two or one plus one can equal anything, in this case, one. And her idea was um, a you know, community of people equals one town, or you, know, you take a husband and a wife and you equal uh, one family. And so she, she, but it was also this bigger idea that you take, um, you, are unwilling to settle for, for the logical, finite answer. Mm -hmm. and, and you're more willing to settle for the illogical um, uh, calculation because that allows you uh, ultimate freedom. And it was more philosophical, but she was, what she was really saying is, uh, the problem is I was too much like Ambrosio, that I saw sort of infinity um, and this sort of infinite possibility in this story, and I was unwilling to make it equal to. Mm -hmm. At one point, you said, this story is so much bigger than a piece of cheese. And she said, no, it's exactly the size of the piece of cheese. <laughs> she said a lot of very wise things. Yeah. <laughs> I, I, I eventually listened, but it took a while. You did. But it's the journey, though, that I think that, that, she, that you took the family on that she's probably so grateful for. I want to point out that um, um, her name is Sarah Corbett. As many of you may know her as the as a, a co-author uh, with... Amanda Linhout of A House in the Sky, which came out just a couple weeks ago, and it's 
about Amanda's um, kidnapping ordeal in Somalia. And um, she was on Morning Joe this morning, actually, right? Amanda was. Yeah. 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 Talking about it. so. It's, it's a gorgeous book. It really. It's one of the most uh, inspiring books. I don't know exactly how they did it, but it's one of the most incredible stories. Um, would you mind reading uh, a section from the telling room, and uh, then we'll have some questions from the audience? Sure. Yeah. So there was there, uh, just to set this up. There was. Um, Ambrosio had lost his cheese and uh, had it stolen, and he had only, um, it had been packaged in, in this very idiosyncratic white tin, and it was packaged in olive oil, uh, which was another idiosyncrasy of the cheese. And it was this Manchego-like cheese that, um, that uh, there was none left of except over, I, I came to find out that he actually had one more tin in the cave that he was never, going to open. It was like this religious so He object. lost this entire enterprise. Yeah. He was taken away from him. He's totally broke. He's got $3 million in debts. He's yeah. got creditors. He's crushed. Yeah. Well, across town, there's a brand new kind of the soulless re reiteration of his company has been taken over by this corporation. Is yeah. that right? Yes. And according to Ambrosio, they would buy their milk uh, on the market. They wouldn't, they wouldn't have the sheep graze on the barcos near the village. And um, so that this, this cheese had been bastardized, according to him. This was, the, this was, he called it the dead cheese or the soulless cheese. And what they were doing was industri industrializing this cheese, which was everything he stood against. Uh, because cheese, for people who make it, is so, it's so organic, right? I mean, it's, kind of, it's of its place. It's the terroir. Of, yeah. yeah the, that's exactly what it is. And, and it's, a, it's a fingerprint of a moment. Um, that only exists in that moment, even in the same place. That, that tin of cheese that came three years later, it was, it was different than the mm -hmm. one that came three years earlier. Um, so, and, so, but what he had was this one tin that he was gonna save forever. And before our family left in 2003, Ambrosio had told me this legend of the cheese and he, at that point, I was dutifully writing it down. And I think he decided to give me the ending of my book. Um, and the ending of my book, according to Ambrosio, um, was going to be this moment. And of course, in the book, there's another third of the book to go. There's a lot more. Um, and I get implicated in, in their relationship, between the relationship between Julian and Ambrosio. And Ambrosio and I um, find ourselves at, at some uh, interesting conflict points. But, but in this moment, we went to the telling room. He invited us up. It was September before we were to leave. And he invited us up for a merienda, which was a sort of late afternoon snack we were going to have. And um, he had his friends there. He had his shepherd friends and his uh, farmer friends. And they were, they were very drunk. And they were having a great time. And they were very loud. And uh, we came up, and we had the two young kids, and they had a plate sitting there for me to have the deep fried sheep ears, um, which are, you know, incredibly hard to eat. They're really mm -hmm. disgusting. They're very chewy and, um, <laughs> and they put three on and I, being the old Castilian that I was hoping to be, I, I sort of ate them heartily, like, this is fantastic, you know, like, give me more, but I didn't say give me more, but the minute, <laughs> the minute they were gone, they ladled four more onto the plate and I was like, I got, I'm gonna throw up now. 
and I saw Sarah just across the telling room, and she had our daughter, May, who was in diapers. And I said, um, I think she has a dirty diaper, and uh, I can ch I'll change it. Um, and Sarah turned to me and said, she doesn't have a dirty diaper. <laughs> I was like, no, she definitely has a dirty diaper. And I'm taking her out of here right now to change it. And so I took her, I took May outside and um, started, you know, doing deep breathing and <laughs> tried, tried to get control of um, my intestines. And then I came back in and um, I came in the door and Ambrosio had his back to the door and he was standing there and Sarah was next to him and said, hey, come here, you gotta come here and check this out. And I walked over and Ambrosio was standing over a little flame and he had, the, he had a white tin of cheese and in my absence he'd gone down into the cave to, to take the, back this last uh, tin uh, and bring it up to the telling room. And so the olive oil was bubbling and the cheese was sort of sweating and he stood over it and in Ambrosio's world, you commune with your food, and, and the cheese is actually a talking character in this book, not because I decided to make it one, but it's just because it is. It's just how it works there. And Ambrosio took a lot of advice from the cheese, and so um, he was having this moment with the cheese, and then he, he cut um, two pieces, and he gave, he handed them to um, Sarah and myself. So I'll just read that. Okay, great. How, and the other thing is I had now waited 13 years to try this, or 12 years to try this cheese. So it was pretty significant. How do you begin to describe a moment for which you've waited a small eternity, thinking it was never to be? How do you downplay such a consummation? Inside, I was turning cartwheels, doing the Watusi, soft-shoeing with a vaudeville smile, while outside, my ersatz Castilian stoicism crumbled. Wow, 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 I repeated as Ambrosio watched and grinned, saying nothing. Oh, it was a strong cheese, a Herculean cheese. You could tell that immediately, tangy and tart, melting and then flaring again. With the first crumble, it spread slowly in lava flow across the palatal landscape, tasting of minerals and luscious buttercream, of chamomile and thyme. It tasted of dirt and flour and dirt, manure and nectar, and perhaps of love and hate too. A gustatory alert went up and my whole mouth was watering and alive, awakened from Van Winkle slumber and emergency ready. This was a cheese that, like its master, sharply caught you unawares, lovingly provoked you while assuming your submission, and then its richness overwhelmed all previous thoughts, tastes, memories. I now understood it vaguely how the cheese must have created a conduit to the past, for its concentration was a force, an energy, a momentum, a psychic drill bit boring a wormhole in this Castilian space-time continuum. I had no past with this cheese. My past lay in those individually wrapped slices of processed Kraft American cheese, or cheese so alien that it was spelled C-H-E-E-Z, cheese whiz, cheese doodles, cheese-its, fromage facsimiles that conjured school lunches in our 70s suburban kitchen my mom flipping grilled cheese sandwiches, punching open can after can of high C for my brothers and me, until our purple-orange mustaches glowed with a sharpie permanence. Eating Paramo de Guzman now, I realized that this was the memory. That is, I was having the memory as I was making the memory. That this cheese could compress time. And yet it was just cheese, right? So what was it that I tasted now? 
Ambrosio leaned over and dropped the plate on the table among the chattering men who reached out greedily and grabbed what there was to grab. Had anyone asked, he might have just said, oh, that, that's just some old cheese we had lying about, but no one bothered. They gobbled the slices, carrying on as they did, not once remarking on what they ate. Perhaps Ambrosio wouldn't have had it any other way. It seemed like an age-old Castilian transaction, homemade food delivered to guests, like the sharing of family wine. But with wine also came conversation about the wine, and debate about the wine, and expositions about the wine, histories and tall tales and smack talk. And here, with Ambrosio's cheese, there was none of that. What didn't occur to me at the time, what never crossed my mind, in fact, was that perhaps the event was significant only for us, that maybe we'd made the cheese mythic, or I had, sucking in everyone behind me, and Ambrosio flattered as anyone might be by an interested visitor and gifted in the art of myth-making himself had gone right along with me, pumping helium into my balloon while I ran around urging everyone to look at the beautiful balloon. Meanwhile, the men in the room took the cheese for what it was, cheese. Besides, why would they willingly revisit Ambrosio's bad luck with it? And yet, here were Sarah and I transfixed and under a late summer spell, now with a second piece of the original Paramo de Guzman in our mouths, tasting the specific land and animals from 10 years earlier, the Chura sheep grazing in the Barcos, the essence of a lost place unlocked for us by Ambrosio, the giant on his witness hill. What did the cheese taste like? I'd like to pretend that it tasted like love or history or God, if those things possess a real taste that its molecules reshaped my own and created a flash of insight. But you know, it tasted like really good cheese. Sublime cheese, though in this context, it didn't matter what the cheese tasted like. The children cooed and squawked. We were bursting with gratitude. Ambrosio placed the last slices on the table and one by one, the men with hairy fingers and raspy laughter picked them from the plate and popped them thoughtlessly into their mouths until the much-heralded and ballyhooed Paramo de Guzman cheese was gone forever. Thank you. That's really fun to listen to, for you to just riff on, I mean, it's just amazing. <laughs> hey, can we have the house lights up and we'll ask some questions? Hi, my name is Debbie, and you're an excellent storyteller. And I have two questions. First, um, when um, Elizabeth Castova was here and talking about the historian, I know there's like a literary um, travel, a tourist travel to the places that were in her book. So has Guzman shown up on the map for tur literary tourists? Oh, wow. And the second question is, how did you get Ambrosio's permission or okay or blessing to write the book? That's a good, that's a good question. Um, so I think the answer to the first is I'm not sure. I've heard now that people are drifting up there, um, which will make Ambrosio very happy because he's the mayor of Guzman now, and <laughs> he will show people a very good time. Um, getting permission from him was um, never a question. But this is the great generosity of Ambrosio, and it became more complicated later, I think. 
Um, he was telling these stories to be heard. He was telling these stories in the telling room, and I think he understood that by doing so, by keeping these histories, um, telling these, some of these secrets that he, that he told, that someday when he was gone, the stories would still echo in these rooms. So he was not uh, adverse to me coming or, and or filling me with these stories. He wanted a record of these, and he was never going to write them down. He's the great oral storyteller, but he was never going to record them. And I think what he, in his mind, thought was that um, I was going to be the faithful scribe. Uh, so he, he lavished a lot of attention on me as we went along, and he told a lot of stories. When he, I think later in the process, when he realized, and I was very open with him about who I was talking to, especially when I went to see Julian, um, I visit another, I visit Ambrosio's lawyer who says some things that, that are a little bit damning too in the book. And um, I invited Ambrosio in to some of those conversations that I was having. So I didn't feel like I was hiding anything from him. And at one point he said, then you just go tell, you gotta just, you have to tell the truth. Um, Mike, the tension in the book is, did Julian steal a company or not? Right, and, and was Ambrosio going to kill him or not? Right. And that just played out all the way. Um, it's still playing out, actually, at some level. Even today? Yeah. yeah. Yeah, I think so. And it's part of what Ambrosio did every time he told the story of how he was going to do this murder, he murdered Julian. So it became cathartic to just tell about how he was going to do this. Except that all through Castell, um, everybody knew this, this legend of Ambrosio also going to kill his best friend. So. Um, a lot of people were very worried. And in Castile, a real grudge is settled. Um, you know, a real Castilian grudge, like an old Castilian grudge, is settled with bloodshed. So it's not idle. This, these aren't idle threats when you begin to talk like this. People have a long history of seeing these play out, these kinds of things play out in, in a, a terrible way, especially in the Spanish Civil War. All these mass graves that were being unearthed in this area while I was there uh, were full of people who were not necessarily murdered for their political affiliation in the end. That was one of the most surprising things of, of what, what's been found out about these mass graves. A lot of these killings were revenge killings. You, you took the girlfriend that, that I had you know, in high school. Um, you guys uh, forced my parents out of business or took the land that we couldn't afford. You were the ones who took it from us. Now we're going to take it back. Um, so. So this idea that Ambrosia was going to do this, this killing, too, when he told it to me was something very natural for him to, to do. And he, he didn't have any self-consciousness about, like, oh, what's that going to look like in a book until there was a book? You know? and, then, and then this visit I made in July, I will tell you this. We um, had this weekend, and as it has always been when I go to leave, Ambrosio said, when are you coming back? And I said, I hope in the fall, you know, I'm going to travel around for the book, and then I hope to come back. And he, and I, but I made a joke, and I said, that is, if people here like the book, I'll come back. And he, and he got very serious, as serious as he's ever been with me. Um, and he just fixed me with this stare, and he said, if people don't like the book here, you best never come back. Really? Yeah. And he was in it, but it was just, uh, you know. How did that make you feel? Uh, not I wasn't afraid. Like I hadn't gone to the top of his list of, of people to murder, but um, but that was the thing I, I guess I feared. I, you know, that's why it took me so long to finish the book. I, I feared that I was going to get tur turned out of this uh, garden that I'd found. I, I mean, 
Part of it, too, is he, you're obviously very vulnerable if you haven't read the pages yet and you don't know what's coming. And so it was a little bit of that talking, too. But, um, but so the short answer is he was wide open to this idea until there was an actual book. And now he's going to have to define himself against it, and our relationship is in this sort of state of dynamic flux. Wow. All over a piece of cheese. <laughs> That's amazing. I love it. Yes, right there in the back. Uh, thank you very much. My name is Anne. Um, I've really enjoyed the book on many levels. I'm very curious, though, after Einstein's brain and this extraordinary cheese, what's the next story that's going to find <laughs> you? Wow. Um, I have been thinking a little bit about what happens next. Um, I, I'm really interested in, uh, at the moment, this could change next week, but I'm very interested in Thoreau right now. And I don't know what that means exactly. I just think Thoreau has been uh, appropriated and misappropriated. So, you know, Thoreau is the reason for the libertarians doing what they do, the hippies doing what they do, the Occupy movement, the Tea Party. And um, I just find that interesting. I, I don't know that I have a fully formed idea. There's a whole story list of other wacky, nutty things that I can't tell you about. Um, but I, I have been thinking about and sort of meditating more about this, uh, this idea that I really found in, in Ambrosio and, and in that part of Spain, um, this connection to the land and, and what it gives and then the philosophy that comes out of that and whether that's alive anymore for us or how, how how alive is it, really? Have you read Thoreau's essay, Katahdin? Yeah. The one that ends contact, 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 yeah. with exclamation points. It's like he has this almost electric epiphany that he's apart from the world, but a part of the world. Yeah. Much like Ambrosio. And yeah. I can see why you'd be interested. It's, if you have, it's an electrifying essay. Yeah. Yeah. So I can see you moving to Walden Pond. <laughs> <laughs> But I'm going to use the facilities yeah. there. Don't, don't worry about it. Well, listen, I want to thank you for coming back to Traverse City thank these you, many years later. It was too long. Um, we want to see you again with the next book. It just don't take 13 years to do it, okay? <laughs> thank All right. you. Thank you very much. That was Michael Paternity at the National Writers Series, talking with Writers Series founder Doug Stanton. Paternini is the author of The Telling Room, a tale of love, betrayal, revenge, and the world's greatest piece of cheese. Next time on the National Writers Series, Jamie Ford in conversation with guest host Rich Folley. Ford's latest novel is called Songs of Willow Frost. Thanks to Joe Bears at the Traverse City Opera House. I'm Linnea Melcarrick, and this is Interlock and Public Radio. Music